A number of evangelical Christians are angry about the recent consultation into marriage equality. I recently received an email from the British Christianist pressure group Christian Concern. They urged me to give them some money so that they could stand up to the fatal undermining of marriage as biblically defined by Jesus himself. This gives a sort of impression of marriage as an institution which was defined once and for all by the Christian New Testament. Christian concern might accuse the government of redefining marriage, but who really defined it in the first place? I had a chance to speak with New Testament scholar, fellow of the Centre for Inquiry and host of the podcast The Human Bible, Robert M. Price. I began by asking him whether a citizen of first century Judea would have recognised our modern institution of traditional marriage. I should think so, um, partly because, especially the way uh, it's done in uh, Judaism and some Eastern European countries, because the idea of crowning the bride and groom as king and queen for a day seems to be implied in the Song of Solomon, which was some kind of symbolic wedding ritual. And uh, the uh, the monogamy and the commitment and all of that, I, I don't uh, think there'd, there'd be anything that alien. Uh, we don't really know much about their ceremonies and so forth, but but I don't think they would have found it that odd. What about some aspects at the periphery of marriage? Dating, engagement, white weddings, and the role of government signing off the the whole process? Uh, Yeah, I gather that uh, they didn't have uh, official weddings and the like, uh, but uh, there was some official recognition implied in uh, inheritance laws and so forth. Uh, there, There were, I think, just a public... Uh, ceremony of commitment apparently would have done the trick, but it's hard to know how closely any authorities, village elders or whatever, would have scrutinized these things. Uh, dating, I think nobody ever heard of. Uh, they they probably had arranged marriages. Engagement, they, they did certainly have uh, betrothal. And uh, I- in fact, that was, at least in New Testament times, Uh, more of a stronger bond than our engagement is today, because to break it, you had to get divorced. Uh, Also, at least in the the New Testament period, it seems to have been fine for couples to cohabit and have sex uh, before they were officially married. Uh, So uh, there were some differences, but in some ways it was more liberal-seeming than it is today. Today, many people take it for granted that marriage is something which should be sanctified with religious ceremony and ritual. What role would the temple or the church have played for early Christians? As far as I know, that is never made explicit in the Bible, probably because everybody just took it for granted, but there is, there certainly is no wedding ceremony or service given, except, again, the Song of Solomon seems to refer to it obliquely, uh, the, uh, the bedecking of the bride in advance and all of that, and one of the Psalms appears to be part of a liturgy of the royal wedding. Common people kind of emulated these things as much as they could, but we don't really know exactly what they would have said. They had plenty of ceremonies. This was probably one of them, though strangely it isn't outlined. So I'm getting the impression that the thing we think of as, say, Christian marriage is very much uh, an interpolation of very scant remnants of a ceremony which may possibly have existed a long time ago. 
it's sort of like the tunes to the Psalms. They were once known, but nobody saw any reason to write it down. It was still living music. Well, it's not anymore, and we can hardly guess how it uh, sounded. Same sort of a thing here, I think, that uh, it's become overlaid by Hellenistic and Roman customs, like a wedding cake and a wedding ring. We have no idea whether they did that in the biblical culture, but in the Christian church they did. It's not read into the the text. I don't think anybody today in any Christian group claims they're doing exactly what they did in biblical times. Everyone knows they don't know. They just figure, well, we do know that they considered people married and before that betrothed and that adultery was off limits and things like that. And they figure rightly that that's probably close enough. Evangelical Christians often cite Matthew chapter 19, 1 to 6 as Jesus defining marriage in a way that's incompatible with some modern notions of marriage equality. What do you think is really going on here? This is the thing about the divorce dispute, and Jesus says, well, yes, I know Moses gave you the right to have a bill of divorce, but this isn't the will of God. For that, you got to take a look at Genesis, and it says that uh, for you know, the uh, man and wife will cleave to one another, and, and therefore, if God has united them, let no mere mortal separate them. Uh, and, well, this, this isn't attempt, in a sense, to define marriage because it's a it's like an etiological story, as anthropologists call it. It's an attempt to, to say, here's what marriage ought to be, and with the implication that it can't be dissolved. And how do I know this? Well, because Scripture depicts God's design for it. Well, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but that use of Scripture attributed to Jesus is, I think, an attempt to stipulate at least an aspect of marriage that you shouldn't dissolve it. So I, I don't know that they're really that far away from the intent of the text, whether Jesus said anything about it, in fact, or not. Was divorce a problem for the early church? Uh, yeah, it seems like it was, because uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, there's all manner of uh, discussion about should you divorce if you've embraced uh, mutual celibacy, which was going on in the, in the second century, at least, when I think First Corinthians was written. But uh, the Gospels uh, bring up this issue of can you get divorced uh, or not. Herod Antipas is chewed out by John the Baptist for divorcing uh, his wife to marry a new one and, and so on. Uh, and then uh, what is in Mark and Luke about uh, no grounds for divorce Matthew amends, adding, well, except for porneia, whatever that means, kind of loosely uh, immorality, that certainly implies that divorce continued to be a problem, and he felt he had to amend the sacred text. So it must have been a, an ongoing problem. When I read this section, it does seem to be a very strong prohibition of divorce. And, and for much of British and American history, divorce was a profoundly shameful thing, but that shame seems to have almost entirely evaporated. It doesn't seem to cause a problem for conservative Christian voters and politicians, for example. So we have Newt Gingrich, who campaigns on a vaguely Christianist platform, having been divorced twice, doesn't seem to have harmed him at all. So how do you think it is that divorce no longer seems to be a problem, whereas extending marriage rights to gay couples has become an obsession for the Christian right. Well, I think that too will change. I think Charles Krauthammer is right, though he's very conservative. He says this is really a generational issue and it won't be long before uh, nobody's squawking about it. In all these cases, the theology 
had to accommodate itself to the fact of the matter. Uh, fundamentalists used to say women should not work outside the home. Oh, no, no. Uh, but then uh, economics changed so that they really had no choice. And, and they did. And so you just stopped hearing about that. Uh, same thing. Uh, the, uh, the evangelicals used to have a pretty good uh, rate of staying together, but divorce began to happen. And uh, they just stopped making such a big deal out of it because of the chaos it would create, still does uh, get invoked against some people. Oh, I'm sorry you can't be a Sunday school teacher in our church because you're divorced, uh, as silly as that may sound. Uh, but uh, it's much, much less of a problem because they just have to, to cope with it. Same thing with premarital sex. That is rampant I among evangelical youth to the point where I wonder what it is they can point to as any kind of relevant distinction from the so-called sinners and uh, homosexuality that is more and more accepted uh, and i think the uh, the alarm of the real conservatives may reflect their distress at the new flexibility uh, of the more liberal wing of evangelicalism and, and and it has to do with like if you find out members of your own family are gay well you could just slam the door in their face but i think fewer people will want to do that and eventually they'll find a way to get used to it like they did on all these other issues for which I don't blame them I'm grateful they're not some sort of Taliban fanatics finally you've just launched a new podcast in association with Center for Inquiry the show is called the human Bible can you explain to our listeners what this new show is about Yes, uh, for some years I've done a podcast called The Bible Geek, where I just answer questions that are emailed to me. Uh, based on that, uh, the Center for Inquiry approached me and said, how about doing something of the same kind? And this one has a different format. There are segments uh, where I zero in on one or another very bizarre, puzzling biblical text and try to explain what it's doing there and what it means. There's another one called... Uh, apologetics is never having to say you're sorry, where I'll pick out a standard argument to defend the faith and show what's wrong with it. It's it's a lot of fun. It's We've had two. I'm about to do another one tomorrow, and it seems to go over very well.